Well, today we come again to our series through the book of Colossians. We're in Colossians chapter 2, and we're starting in verse 6 today. And I'm going to read that out. If you have a Bible, it'd be great to get that out. It'll be on the screens as well. So turn on your Bibles, open your Bibles, do whatever you need, and hear the word of the Lord to us today. Colossians 2, verse 6. We'll be going through verse 15. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray together as we come to understand his word. Lord Jesus, we do come to you today. We want to receive from you the living God. We want to hear from your word. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you might open up our minds to hear from you, to respond to you. We're grateful that you hear us. We're grateful that you use your word to transform us. And so we ask that to happen today as you see fit. We pray that in your mighty name, amen. Well, sometimes in life, we just want to be told what to do. For me, it comes when we think about home projects. I'm not super handy. I'm unlike our our previous pastor. I hear Jeff Brewer was pretty a handy guy. Uh, That's not me. So when something breaks, I don't have a lot of ideas. I just want to know how to fix it whatever it is. So last week, a doorknob just randomly fell off our kid's bathroom door, just there on the ground, no apparent reason. I was less concerned about why this happened. We do have a nearly 100-year-old house, so things like this happen fairly frequently. But I was more concerned about what I needed to do to get the handle on the door so kids could go to the bathroom in privacy and such things. Well, when it comes to following Jesus, we can also have this what do I need to do mentality. In other words, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. But this is not how the Christian life works. It's a relationship with a person. 
Yes, the most important person in the universe, but it's a relationship with a person. And intuitively, we all know that we can't go online. We can't Google how to love someone, whether it's a spouse or a friend or a close family member. Sure, I mean, I guess you could do that. Go on Google, see how do I love someone. You might get some suggestions. I would not recommend that. It doesn't mean the suggestions will work, because why? We need to respond to a person. There's not a formula here. But somehow when it comes to growing and maturing in our relationship with Jesus, we default into thinking that there is a to-do list that we need to accomplish for this relationship to work. If we fall short of whatever that list is, and for some of us it's quite a long list, others a little bit shorter, then if, if we're short of that, we, we conclude, yeah, my relationship's not going so well because I didn't fill in the blank. But if we are checking off the items on the list, we think we are doing well. Well, this mentality can make our time with Jesus so very dry, less like a relationship, more like a complex program or a formulaic system. And in our passage today, the Apostle Paul is continuing to show us how we can grow and mature in Christ so that we can fend off the false teaching that may come our way. And he shows us that growth does not come from a list or a set of rules. So to give us some context, if you haven't been here the last few weeks, we'll remember that the Colossian church had been infiltrated by a way of thinking, a philosophy, a teaching that was threatening to lure people away from Jesus. It was very persuasive, it was attractive, and it was dangerous. Paul keeps calling the Colossians back to Jesus. He wants them to remember how the gospel came to them, how it bore fruit, how it's growing. It came to them through Epaphras. To, he wants them to remember the majesty of Jesus, that he is the creator of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. He's the head of the church and to remind them that this message came directly from God. It wasn't made by a human mind. It wasn't invented by Paul. It came from God himself. And so Paul is praying for them in chapter 1 that they might walk worthy of Christ. And later in chapter 1, verse 28, he wants to present everyone mature in Christ. And he wants them to grow. He wants them to mature in their faith. And the Lord wants the very same thing for us today who know the Lord Jesus. And so in today's passage, we see this central truth about our spiritual maturity or our growth, and it's growth comes by walking in Jesus. Growth comes by walking in Jesus. So how do we walk in Jesus? The text reveals three principles for growth, not check boxes, so not three things you just got to check off, but three patterns that we can follow to walk in Jesus. The first principle is to walk as you received him. That's in verses six and seven. The second principle is don't be captivated by anything other than Christ. That's in verses eight to 12. And the third principle is remember Christ's victory. That's in verses 13 to 15. So let's look at that first principle, to walk as we received him. You know, we're naturally wired to think that we need to keep moving past the basics. Think about it. When, 
When you first learn to ride a bike, you either have a balance bike or a bike with training wheels, and then you go to like a big boy bike, and then eventually you get like a mountain bike or a road bike. In music, uh, you start with, say, a snare drum. Some of us never progress beyond the snare drum, by the way. But snare drum, and then you go to this full set eventually. You, you progress there. In math, we start with arithmetic, and then we get to um, algebra. We might even get to calculus one day. In basketball, which I, I know about a little bit, you, you start with a layup, and then you progress to a three-pointer. But you get the point. It's natural to think that's also how it works in our relationship with Jesus. We start with the basics, and then we move on. We get to the next step. But here, Paul is telling us that the way we progress and grow in the Christian life is by staying stuck in the basics. We never move on past the basics by remembering how we came to be in Christ in the first place. Paul's point is that we never move beyond who Jesus is and what he has done. So look at verse 6 again. Paul says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How did the Colossians receive Jesus? They received it as a message from God that came to them from Epaphras. And Epaphras likely learned the message from Paul. They received Jesus with full conviction that he was the Christ and that he was Lord of all. How did they receive the message? They received it by grace through faith. And if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, I want you to consider this question. What did you do to respond to the message of the gospel when it came to you? What did you do? Well, the answer is you received it. You received his free uh, gift of salvation. You received his grace. You, it's by grace through faith in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. That meant surrendering your life to him from turning from your old ways and turning towards Christ, what the Bible calls repentance. It meant trusting in him, what the Bible calls faith. So any of us who have trusted in Jesus can affirm we began this relationship by grace through faith. But somehow we naturally default into thinking in order to grow, there's got to be another way. We need to move beyond that paradigm by grace through faith. We think we need to do a lot of stuff to grow. We think that it's up to us. Well, not so, says Paul. You may remember in his letter to the Galatians, Paul is flabbergasted that some would have this type of thinking. And he says in Galatians 3.3, are you so foolish? Having begun with the spirit, are you now being perfected with the flesh? You may have heard what Tim Keller rightly said about the gospel. He said the gospel is not just the ABC of the Christian life, but it is the A to Z of the Christian life. Friends, this means that receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of our lives is not merely how we get into heaven, although it surely is that, but it is also our growth plan. It's how we live and grow and mature in the Christian life. But what does it mean to live in this way? How do we live by grace through faith in Jesus? Well, verse 7 helps us here. 
So if you look there, Paul mixes his metaphors, and ironically, if we want to walk rightly in Jesus, we need to be firmly rooted or grounded, grounded in the truth. So to live by grace through faith, we must be rooted in Jesus. What does that mean? It means He is the foundation of our life. It means our identity flows from Him. We see our worth, not in what we do, but in relation to Him. Our fruitfulness comes from Him. Remember what Jesus said in John 15, 5, that, if, that we are to abide in Him, and for apart from Him, we can do nothing. That is nothing of eternal value. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said that it is by virtue of being rooted in Christ, our union with Christ, that we bring forth fruit. He says, every bunch of grapes has been first in the root, it has passed through the stem and flowed through the sap vessels and fashioned itself externally into fruit, but it was first in the stem. So also every good work was first in Christ and then is brought forth in us." End quote. The point. The point is we need to be rooted in Jesus to produce fruit that pleases Him, to grow in the Christian life. If we're going to walk by grace through faith, it also means we are built, being built up in Him, meaning He is the one who causes us to grow. Last week, we talked about this great mystery, the revealed mystery that Christ is in us. He is shaping us to become more like himself. He himself changes our desires. He himself directs our lives. It also means that we have been established in the faith. We're not being swayed by all sorts of other teachings, but firmly committed to what God has revealed to us in his word. Paul says, just as you were taught. So we're, we're uh, rooted in this gospel that we are, we're taught, the gospel that was preached to us, the word of God that was preached to us, the good news. This is God's message. So to walk by grace through faith, it means we're also abounding in thanksgiving. You see, followers of Jesus should easily be the most thankful people on the planet. We should overflow with thanksgiving because we have been given new life. We have received an eternal inheritance. We are counted as not guilty before the king of the universe. We have been given all things in Jesus. We have a family. We are part of his body. We have an eternal home. So we should be full of thanks because our hearts have found what they were looking for, what they were made for, worshiping and following the Lord of all. So practically speaking, what might it mean for you this week to live as you received Jesus? How can you live by grace through faith? Well, for some, it may mean that you need to slow down slow down, to remember and reflect upon who Jesus is and what he has done. Remember his character. Spend time in his word dwelling upon who this one is. His sacrificial, patient, pursuing love towards you. Remember what he's done for you. 
For others, it may mean you need to grow in your knowledge and understanding of what Jesus accomplished. Maybe you don't fully get the gospel, and you need to revisit some scriptures like Ephesians 2 or Titus 3 or John 3.16, and be reminded what Christ did to put you back in relationship to him. Or maybe you just need to ask somebody here at Hope to come alongside and grab a coffee and learn what it means to be in Christ. And then for others, you may need to repent this week. You might need to confess that you have been trying to please God through your service, through your frenetic activity. You're worn out. You think the Christian life is designed to to wear you out. Well, God may be calling you to rest in Him this week, to repent and rest in Him. So how do we walk in Jesus? First, we must walk in Jesus as we received Him, by grace, through faith. The next way this passage shows us to walk in Jesus is through a warning. Don't be taken captive by anything other than Christ. If you look in verse 8, Paul uses strong military language to warn the Colossians about the false teachers there. What to watch out for. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive. In other words, make sure no one carries you away. No one steals your freedom. No one takes you away from Christ. Well, how could that happen? He says it's by philosophy and empty deceit. This philosophy is not talking about the subject in school. It's human philosophy, the way of the world, the wisdom of the world. Empty deceit is just that, trying to lure someone to believe something that is known to be false. See, there were some persuasive teachers in Colossae that had some great life principles. These were like the Tony Robbins of the day, the Oprah Winfrey's of the day. They were gifted, motivational speakers. But their message was dangerous and destructive. Paul says this because their philosophy and deceit was based upon human tradition. You know that phrase, it's always been done this way? That could be a powerful way to persuade people to do something. Think about the Pharisees, religious leaders at the time of Jesus. They had all sorts of traditions that they required others to obey. Friends, Jesus hates this form of religion or this false appearance of godliness. Listen to what Jesus said in Mark 7, 9 about the Pharisees who had all these human traditions. You Pharisees have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. You see, human religion is full of rules, human rules made up by humans that must be obeyed. Things like pray this many times a day, eat or don't eat this type of food, observe these special days. Paul says that these kinds of philosophies are based on human tradition. They're based on the elemental spirits, or could be translated the elemental principles of the world. You see, back in the first century, Peter O'Brien, a scholar, tells us there were thought to be four elemental principles from which everything was believed to have been made. There was earth and wind and fire and air. And the belief was that behind those 
four principal elements, there were spirits that had to be appeased. There were some sort of intermediaries that you had to go through and please in order to get to God or get things that you wanted. So this philosophy that the false teachers in Colossae, whatever it was, were, were purporting, it was based upon human tradition. It was based really in these elemental spirits, these evil spirits that were behind those traditions from the demonic realm. Basically, these were ways to be politically correct, to be religiously correct in that context. But the problem was these teachings were not according to Christ, meaning Jesus did not affirm or endorse them. You may be thinking, well, that's great, Eric. I don't worship elemental spirits today, so it's not even applicable. Well, don't say that so quickly because we can see worldly philosophies, we can see human traditions creeping into the church that are not from Christ. What are some examples of some of those things? Well, there's, there's countless examples, but there's philosophies out there that claim Jesus is Lord, but then they also affirm, well, but if you find him another way, that's okay too. Kind of a relativistic way to look at Jesus. There are philosophies that tell us it's okay to marry somebody of the same gender or to change our gender, and that's the prevailing thinking of our culture today, and it's invading into the church. There are philosophies around about school choices. I know of one church that was split because they disagreed on the one right school choice for Christian children. There's philosophies out there that tell us there's one right way to do church. Uh, there's the, the right types of songs to sing. You need to wear a certain type of dress. And we could go on and on. But friends, we need to watch out for teaching that is not rooted in Jesus Christ. Because these things will actually drag us away from Christ. They, were, they will hold us captive, take us captive, and take us from the freedom that we have in Christ. So starting in verse 9, Paul explains why we should only be captivated by Christ. Don't be captivated by this human tradition or philosophy. Be captivated by Christ. Look in verse 9. Why? In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That means in Jesus we have everything that we need if we follow him. God himself dwells within Jesus he is God incarnate. He is God in the flesh. We don't need any other teaching about how to get closer to God. We can go directly to the source. Then in verse 10, it says, and you have been filled in him, the one who had the whole fullness of God dwells in Christ. We've been filled in him, and he is the head of all rule and authority. He's reminding him that Christ is fully in them. Remember last week, Christ is in us. It's the great mystery of the world. And he rules over these elemental spirits, these human traditions, these meaningless philosophies. We don't need to appease some intermediary spirits. We have direct access to the head. And then in verse 11, we get to a religious argument on why Jesus is enough, why we need to be captivated by him. 
Paul says that the Colossians were circumcised with the circumcision of Christ. Now, uh, <laughs> what in the world, Paul? Why are you bringing up circumcision right now with a group of Gentiles? This is, this is interesting. This is an old covenant ritual. It was instituted by God with, with Abraham back in Genesis 17. Well, likely he brings it up because there were some Jewish believers who had come to Colossae. And they had claimed that they needed to be, the Colossians needed to be circumcised in order to be saved, or at least to properly follow Jesus, to go to the next level in their Christian walk. And Paul heads off this argumentation by saying, you've already been circumcised when you came to faith. It was done by Christ himself. Now, what was this circumcision? It was more comprehensive than anything the Colossians were being tempted to implement. It was not a circumcision made by hands, it says, but uh, that cut off part of the body externally, but one that cut off the entire body of the flesh spiritually. So what's Paul saying? He's saying that Jesus has circumcised the Colossian believers with a more significant circumcision than any of the Jewish believers could force upon them. It was a circumcision of their hearts where their old sinful natures, the body of the flesh, was cut off. Well, lest they were confused, Paul elaborates even further in verse 12, and he says, having been buried with him in baptism. If you remember Romans 6, Paul employs the same language of being buried in baptism to talk about the old sinful nature being crucified. And there he explains that this means we're no longer enslaved to it. That means when we came to faith, our sinful nature died. Think Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Paul then says, in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. In other words, since we as believers are in Christ, our story follows Christ's story. This is the beautiful doctrine that we call union with Christ. It's a comprehensive doctrine, but uh, here it means that when Christ died, we died with him. And when he was raised, we were raised with him. It's one reason why baptism is such a powerful sign. And if you haven't yet been baptized and you know and love the Lord Jesus, we'd love to get that going for you and and have uh, this as a sign before all of us. Because when we get baptized, we are affirming that Jesus has changed our life. It's an outward sign. It's not baptism doesn't save us or anything like that, but it's an outward sign of an inward heart reality. And so when we go down into the water, it symbolizes the spiritual reality that our old nature died when we trusted in Christ, and we were buried with him. And when we come out of that water, it symbolizes the spiritual reality, the true spiritual reality that when we believed, we were raised to a new life in the power of the Spirit. Well, if our old nature died, you may be wondering... Well, well, why do we keep on sinning? And it's a fair question. 
And we keep on sinning because though our old sinful nature has died, meaning it no longer reigns in us, the power of sin, the necessity to sin has been broken forever, that sinful nature still remains in us, active in us. Though defeated, it's still very active. That's why Paul will say later in the letter that we need to put off or put to death whatever is still earthly in us, whatever is left over from that sinful nature, whatever still keeps cropping up. So what's the big point Paul is trying to make here in this section? It's that Jesus Christ has done an an amazing work. He's brought us into a new covenant Remember that sign of the circumcision was a sign of his covenant to Abraham. And now there's a new covenant in his blood. And Jesus has circumcised us, not physically, but spiritually, meaning he has set us apart. He has cut off our old sinful nature when we trusted in him. And even more than that, now we are raised with Christ, meaning we have full and complete access to him. His fullness dwells within us. Our destiny will follow His because we are united with Him. We are in Christ. And now we have the freedom to obey Him. And we have power within us to obey. So we don't need to go back to those worthless principles. We don't need to go back to pornography if that has been a struggle. We don't need to go back to gossip We don't need to go back to envy or malice or anger. Whatever sins of the flesh that are troubling you, we don't need to go back there because we have been given new life. We have been set free. We have freedom to obey him, and we don't go back to worthless principles, even religious ones, to try to please God or to grow in him. Why? because he's provided everything we need already in Christ. So friends, don't be held captive by earthly principles or the wisdom of the world or the prevailing political correctness out there or human traditions. That is one way you can become religious, but it's not how to grow in Christ. We do need to be held captive, but be captive by Jesus whose yoke is easy, whose burden is light, who will not be a cruel master. Because he alone can set us free from sin's grip on us. And he alone can give us his own righteousness so that we can follow in his destiny. So how do we walk in Christ? Second principle way we can is by being held captive by nothing but Christ. And now we come to the final way that God shows us in this passage how to walk in Christ through this passage, and that's by remembering Christ's victory. These final verses, starting in verse 13, clearly lead us back to the heart of the message. It's the heart of the mystery, who is Jesus. And if you've been paying close attention to Colossians over the last weeks, you'll notice that Paul keeps coming back to this main point. He keeps reminding them how they were saved, how God's plans intersected with their story. And the message starts in verse 13, and you. 
not you just being the Colossians, but you meaning all human beings. This is all of our story. It's very bad news to start out. Paul says in verse 13, and you were dead. Not, you know, you were struggling, you needed some help, and so we lifted you up. Not, you were doing pretty good, you weren't quite there. No, he says, and you were dead. Why were they dead? Why were all of us dead apart from Christ? In their trespasses and the uncircumcision of their flesh. Colossians had sinned. They had missed God's mark. They were uncircumcised. Not necessarily they were non-Jewish, but they were doing things that uncircumcised pagans would do. You see, when you are dead, you have no hope. This week, I was reminded about this truth from mice. You see, we seem to have a mice problem in our house. And so we started to put out a few traps. So far, we're four for four. <laughs> I put some good bait in there, peanut butter. They love peanut butter. It's very tempting to mice. You know, the mice should not be in our house. They are curious, though. They want to eat the forbidden peanut butter. And so they crawl up into that little trap just to get a taste. And right when they go to eat it, the trap comes down. It kills them instantly. Why am I talking about mice? Well, friends, apart from Christ, we are like those mice. We are dead because of our sin against God. And when you are dead, there is no hope for revival. But amazingly, when we were dead, the text says God made us alive. How? Well, Paul goes from the funeral home to the court of law to describe our condition. Verse 14 says that God made us alive by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. This word cancel literally means erase or wipe clean. There were these records of debt that were handwritten, and it's like he erased it. He canceled it. You see, our sin against God had piled up this record of debt that stood against us. Every evil thought, every sinful deed, from every moment of our life, it was on the record. Things we knew that we had done, things that we don't even know that we have done against a holy God and stood against us with God as the judge. And we were guilty. This record of debt had legal demands. The demands were death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin are death. This is eternal death, eternal separation from God. But amazingly, look at the end of verse 14, this... This record of debt, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You know, it's natural to wonder, and maybe you've thought this before, well, what's the big deal? Why couldn't God just forgive our sins? You know, like a president pardons criminals right before he leaves office. Just kind of say, hey, you're, you're free to go. Because that's not how God set up the world, that's why. God is infinitely loving but he is also infinitely holy. He is infinitely just. 
In all of his attributes, he is that infinitely. So he is also infinitely wrathful as well in a righteous way. He cannot, he will not overlook sin. He demands payment for it. And the payment is death. So friends, if you know and trust in Jesus, remember what he did for you. He erased the record where your sins were recorded. That huge pile of debts that that were written down on that paper, he canceled it, he wiped it away. How? By nailing it to the cross. Jesus himself bore the penalty. He bore the payment for your sins in himself on the cross. And it was on that cross that God's wrath against sin was poured out upon Jesus, his son. Everything you've said that was out of line, everything that you've thought that violated God's law, everything that you've done, knowingly or unknowingly, that violated God's perfect standard, that entire record of debt, all the debts of those who were to trust in him were nailed on that cross where Jesus died. And it is finished. It is done. Jesus paid it all. That means you have been set free. You have been made alive in Christ. You are counted not guilty before this one, this holy God. And friends, if you want to grow in him, you must continually remember who your Savior is. You need to remember what he has done. Why does Paul keep coming back to this? Every single section of the letter? Because we forget. We forget what has been done for us. We forget that we are in Christ. The only way to grow in him is by staying with him. We are still dependent on him every moment of the day. So yes, we come to him by grace through faith, but we grow in him by grace through faith. And we need to remember what he has done. Well, if you're here this morning and you have not put your trust in Jesus, you are still guilty. You may be weighed down by your sins. You you may feel the weight of that. Maybe you don't, but you are guilty And I would say to you, let today be the day that you receive that pardon from Jesus. The day where your sins are wiped clean. All you have to do is repent, turn from your sins, and trust in Christ. This one who died and was raised from the dead for you. His story can be your story. And if you want to grow in him, for those of us who know him, we must continue to remember who our Savior is. We must remember what he has done. We never move past it. So on the cross, Jesus won the ultimate victory. Look with me at verse 15. It says that it was on that cross that Jesus disarmed all the rulers in authority, referring to the evil rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, the ones who had these worldly philosophies that were coming into the Colossians, the ones that were tempting believers and unbelievers and holding them under chains. 
You see, Satan and his demons, they thought they had the upper hand, that they had won when Jesus went to the cross. Why else would, would Satan enter Judas and lead him so that Jesus would be executed? But on the cross, in that humiliation that Jesus went through, Satan was tricked. He was defeated. He was humiliated. And there is no question who has won and who will win in the end. Jesus is the victor. He put the evil rulers and authorities to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Much like a Roman military leader at this time would drag away the defeated king and the captives in the open square in shame as he declared victory. Friends, this victory was once for all and it was in the open. That means the Lord has conquered. It doesn't mean, though, that life will be perfect. It doesn't mean that Satan and his demons have been um, rendered ineffective in anything they're trying to do. No, they are defeated. They know they could never win victory. They've lost, but now they're making war on all of Jesus' offspring. So life is not going to be easy. We are going to experience suffering and trials. So it doesn't mean life will be perfect, but it means that if you're a believer, you are no longer bound to sin. You don't need to sin anymore. You're not under the slavery and fear of death, and you have no reason to fear these evil powers. It also means that the gospel will continue to bear fruit and increase. The enemy can't stop it from happening. Jesus is building his church he is growing his people, and he is growing you, if you are a follower of Christ, into his likeness. So let us stay rooted in him. Let us grow just as we received him by grace through faith, not being held captive by anything other than Christ. And let us remember his great victory for us. Jesus has triumphed. Let's pray together. Father, we are in awe of your power, of your grace, of your mercy. Lord, every single one in this room, if we know you, has a story, and you have rescued us by your grace through faith in your name. Lord, help us to remember that story. Help us to live out of that. Help us to live in dependence on you as we seek to grow. And Lord, for some here this morning who don't yet know you, I ask and pray that you might capture their hearts today, that they might surrender to you, knowing that you are a good master. You alone can be trusted. You alone can deliver them from the bondage that they're under. So Lord, may some, even today, trust in you. And we give you thanks and will give you thanks as we see what you have done among us. We pray these things all in Jesus' name. Amen.